The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Hey, good morning, church. If you are using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find today's passage on page 814. Give you all a moment to find that, and once you have, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1, all the way through 17. It says, And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, They followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, here we are this morning. We are wrapping up our five-part sermon series called The Heart of Making Disciples. So this is our last uh, sermon in that series this morning. And the title of it is just simply called Everyone Confessing Jesus. The main idea this morning is that God's good news kingdom will surge forward. It is surging forward, and it has been surging forward ever since we've seen Jesus interacting and calling his disciples to him there at the beginning of the Gospels. But we're seeing and have seen for thousands of years and will continue to see even down to our day and through our day this good news of God's kingdom surge forward. How? It will do so as everyday disciples confess Jesus in everyday life. This confessing idea is where we have come to in this sermon series where we're going to stitch together what we've heard for the past several Sundays and look at what does it mean for us 
to be confessors, those who open our mouths and with our words are able to articulate the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, him being the great Savior who loves to save great sinners. I would cherish prayer uh, this morning um, as you're sitting there and as we look to these verses. Um, what you're going to hear us talking about this morning is our need to be a Christ-reliant people, for our need to be uh, not sufficient in and of ourselves, for we know that to not be the case, but to be a people who are resting in the all-sufficiency, the perfect power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just keenly feel my inability this morning, which I believe is where Jesus wants me to be this morning, and my hope is that you will find yourself in a similar place. If you've ever found yourself confessing Jesus to somebody, then my trust is that you have found just how powerless you are to make somebody to believe. Amen? <laughs> you ever been there before? Or you're sharing the good news. It's the, the adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink kind of thing, right? Like you've shown them, you've articulated, you've confessed, but what becomes absolutely apparent is how insufficient we are in our confessing to make somebody believe. We cannot convert a soul. That's the power of God. And so in our confessing, we are a reliant people. And that's my hope for us this morning is that as we, you and me, everyday disciples, go about confessing Jesus in everyday life, we would see the good news of God's kingdom. That's the language Jesus uses in Luke 9, we will see it surge forward out these doors and into the six days and the 22 hours we have ahead of us. Why? Not because we are beautifully, strategically structured and sufficient to supply the needs of our neighbors spiritually, but because we go out humbled to the dust, recognizing just how insufficient we are, okay? I feel that in a micro sense here, and so I'm going to ask that as we pray, that you would pray for your pastor, but also not only that, just pray for the brother, sister in Christ sitting to your left and to your right, that they would hear clearly from God and that we would be changed this morning, okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pause the busyness of our hearts the busyness of our minds to make this simple confession. We need you. We need you to make your word come alive to us. We need you to open our eyes to see Jesus clearly this morning. There's a lot of things vying for our attention this morning. We need you to open our mind to understand the words on the page this morning. And I keep saying we need you because I recognize I have no power as the preacher this morning to make that come to pass. So Lord, in humility, you are 
we recognize what is taking place with your word open before us this morning. You are speaking to us. You've revealed everything we need to know for life and godliness here in the word. If we want to hear a word from you, we need to look to the word in front of us. So, Lord, I'm asking that like the prophet Samuel before us, because you have spoke, that we would adopt the attitude of Samuel who says, Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Make us listeners this morning, Lord Jesus, and then not just listeners only, but those who go and do in light of what we have heard. I pray this in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you, Spirit, will come and take this message of mine and make it into a full-blown demonstration of your power so that faith would not rest on the mere words and the plausible wisdom of a man, but that our faith would come to rest in the power of God, the power of God in the gospel, the power of God to save, the power of God himself, King Jesus. It's in his name that I pray these things. Amen. So think about where we've been. We've couched this idea, the heart of making disciples, into just sort of four hooks, four four categories. We've talked first about gospel intentionality, this idea of who's your one, recognizing the importance of one sinner to God. Then we move to this idea of persistent prayer, recognizing that we pray to Jesus because Jesus alone has the power to make spiritually blinded eyes open. And then last week, we talked about that idea of neighboring, that category of where we as everyday disciples just live out life so we are intentional in our neighborhoods, among our neighbors, praying persistently, asking Jesus to open the blind eyes Uh, those spiritually blinded eyes of those neighbors that we interact with, whether it's in our homes or our legitimate next-door neighbors or in places of work or wherever it might be. And now this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to come to this area, the culminating point of disciple-making, and that culminating point is this, the necessity of confessing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our words. You see, our purposeful pursuit in talking about all of these things over the past couple of weeks is so that as we go about our everyday lives, as we're entering and exiting these various neighborhoods that we've talked about this last week, we would go about with the radar of our lives tuned to the gospel, so to speak, so that as we go about these everyday lives, we might seize those God-given doors of opportunity that the Holy Spirit nudges open in the lives of our neighbors in those neighborhoods so that when those doors of opportunity come, we might clearly, as the Apostle Paul said to the Colossians, Colossians 4, that we might clearly declare the mystery of Christ with our speech. Now, this shouldn't be horribly Uh, brand new news to you because that's what Pastor Brady was just talking about a couple of weeks ago when he said that confessing Jesus does involve speaking the gospel for, Romans 10, how are sin-dead sinners to come and believe in Jesus of whom they have never heard, he says. 
the apostle answers his own question by saying these sin-dead sinners will come to believe in Jesus when they hear someone preach or speak or confess the gospel with their speech, with their words. You see, this is the calling that everyday disciples have, just as the first disciples had before us, those first disciples that we see in our text this morning. It's the call to proclaim the gospel with our words. Now, as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 9, and we look at these verses, verses 1 through 17, if you know the context of this chapter, then you know the first disciples are right on the edge of being sent out by Jesus. They've been walking with Jesus, been talking with Jesus, been living with Jesus. They've been seeing Jesus do some pretty miraculous things. Now the time has come where Jesus is looking at the 12 and is saying, 12, you guys are going to go out. I'm staying behind. You're going out. Jesus has modeled for them what this confessing looks like. If you just go back to the beginning of Luke 8, you will see Luke record that they have watched Jesus go about proclaiming and bringing the good news of God's kingdom and healing people and casting out demons. But now the time has come, having modeled it before them, them having watched Jesus, for him to step back and say, now it's time for you to go and do likewise. You see, Christ is the master, and you, me, we are his students. School is now in session in Luke chapter 9, and the master is reminding his disciples that the call to confess Jesus is the call to go in Christ's reliance. That's the first point that we see in the first six verses there in Luke 9. We are to go in Christ's reliance as we are sent. So if you look in your copy of Scripture, notice what Luke wrote starting there in verse 1. Luke says that he, Jesus, called the twelve. So that's how he's referring to the disciples, the twelve. Jesus called the twelve together and he gave them notice. He gave them power and he gave them authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. You see, whether it's first century Palestine or whether it's 21st century Illinois, the plain truth is that disciples of Jesus can accomplish nothing without the help of Jesus. Thus comes the simple summons from Jesus to go. But notice how they are to go. They're to go not in their own power. They're not to go in their own authority, but they're to go in Christ's power. They're to go in Christ's authority. And in chapter 7 and 8, Luke has labored to demonstrate what this power and authority of Jesus looks like over all things. So if you go back to Luke 7, you see Jesus with the power to forgive sin. This is the woman who came to Jesus weeping at his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. And then he says, your sins are forgiven and it blows everyone away. Who in the world has the power to say this but God alone? speaking better than they know in that moment. Then you jump into Luke 8 and you see Jesus with his power over creation. Storm, you're going to stop now. And it stops. Then you see Jesus exercise his power over Satan's dark kingdom when he looks at the garrison demoniac and he casts that demon out. Satan's dark kingdom has nothing on our King Jesus. 
And then at the end of Luke 8, you see Jesus' power over sickness where the woman who is hemorrhaging blood, she comes up and just touches him and is healed. Then you see Jesus exercise power over death by raising up Jairus' daughter. And so the 12 are with Jesus. They're seeing this. They're watching it. They're observing it. And what the 12 need to know now in this moment of being sent out and what they will need to know every day after this particular moment is that they would never move beyond their absolute dependence upon Jesus. There's never coming a future day, three years, two months, and six days from now where you can wake up and go, you know what? I just don't know that I need Jesus today. That's never going to happen. Because you're going to die, and then you're going to go to heaven if you know Jesus. And what are you going to see? You're going to spend an infinite amount of infinities recognizing, I'm always going to need Jesus. So part of it is prepping yourself for eternity by now. Recognizing that there is no area of our lives where you move beyond absolute dependence upon Jesus. The twelve need to understand this. If they're going to cast out demons like Jesus if they're going to cure diseases like Jesus, if they're going to proclaim the kingdom of God with their words like Jesus, newsflash, they are going to need Jesus, all right? Listen, one of the greatest obstacles to Christ-reliance is self-reliance. That's one of the greatest obstacles to what I'm talking about this morning. It's that nagging sin that just resides in the dark corners of all of our hearts where we convince ourselves, you know what, I've got this, and I ain't need no one else because me, myself, and I have got me, myself, and I's back. When you operate in self-reliance, what you do is you explicitly say with your words or implicitly say with your life, I do not need to rely on Christ. You see, if we think making disciples, apply that truth to our specific context here. If we think making disciples, going about as everyday disciples, confessing Jesus in everyday life, if we can think that we can accomplish this in our own strength, if we think that we can make disciples because we have phenomenal systems to do so in our church, if we think we can go out confessing Jesus because we have excellent strategies, if we think we can go out confessing the gospel in our day-to-day lives, in our homes, in neighborhoods, in workplaces, and etc., because we have the structures in place to do so, then what we are doing in those moments is we are fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. This is why Jesus looks to his disciples here in Luke 9, and he says, guys, if you're going to go and do this, you need to go with what I give you. You need to go with the power and authority which I am giving. He is teaching right now, Jesus is, that gospel confession is an invitation to deny self and rely on him. So if you look in verse 3, this is exactly what Jesus is driving at when he begins to explain to them how they're to go about this particular moment in time being sent out to go and proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. He looks to them and says, guys, when you go, you need to take nothing for your journey, verse 3. Don't take a staff, don't take a bag, don't take any bread, don't take any money, and if you go, do not have two tunics. 
You're like, well, that might be a little weird. Like, why is Jesus getting out of the specifics here in this moment? What Jesus is doing is just simply saying, guys, in this moment, do not go out relying on your own abilities. Do not go out relying on your talents, on your skills, on your resources. Instead, what I'm calling you to do is cast yourself on God for your daily needs. I'm inviting you, wooing you into the invitation to not be self-reliant, but to be God-reliant, to not to think you can supply everything you need for yourself right now, but to recognize that you were designed to lean on him who neither slumbers, neither sleeps, and can always provide for you what you need. Cast yourself on God for your daily needs. Now, a humbling truth that none of us, none of us like to hear is that we can be a people who are prone to self-reliance. Anyone here ever find themselves prone to rely on, rely on self a little too much? <laughs> I'm glad to see I'm in good company. Bob Bartolazzi, I saw you back over there raising your eyebrow, eyebrows at me confessing that to myself. I can be. I can be overly prone to be self-reliant. And because this is true, saints, because we are so prone to rely on ourselves, the question I think we must ask as a church, the question that we must ask as individuals is this. Are we, as a church, leaning on self-reliance? Yeah, I know what we say with our words. But do our actions betray our words? Are we a self-reliant church? Ah, oh, that Delta church, man, they got the liturgy and they got the stuff and they got the system, they got the structure, they got the, they got the, they got the, all their I's are dotted, T's are crossed, they've really, they've really got it going. But it's possible to be that kind of church and be utterly self-reliant. Does it mean you don't have systems, structures, strategies, these sorts of things? But there's a way to have all that stuff ordered and in place and yet be a fully functional, self-reliant church. Bring that reality down to the individual level. As individuals, ask yourself right now, as I go about my days as an everyday disciple, am I leaning on self-reliance? Am I a self-reliant man, a self-reliant woman? Whether it's for the advance of the gospel in Springfield, or whether it's in our pastoring as elders, in our community groups, in our discipleship groups, at the individual level of our own lives, in our places of work, in our homes, with our marriages, in our parenting, among our relationships, with our finances, in our battles with the power of sin, any of these things or more, we must ask and we must fight to answer the question, are we a self-reliant church or are we a Christ-reliant church? Am I a self-reliant disciple or am I a Christ-reliant disciple? I was talking with someone a couple of weeks ago and they asked probably one of the best questions that I've been asked in a while is this, how can I tell the difference? How can I tell the difference when I'm being self-reliant or whether I'm being Christ-reliant? 
And so we started talking about it, and the way we sort of diced it up was this. In a sense, listen to me, in a sense, there's no difference between being self-reliant and Christ-reliant. And what do I mean by that? The common denominator between self-reliance and Christ-reliance looks the same. When I use the gifts, the skills, the talents, the abilities that God has given to me to use for his glory and for the good of others, when I go out using those gifts, skills, and abilities, I go using them, and I will use them maybe in a way where I'm self-reliant. Well, then someone might say, well, how do I know if I'm being Christ-reliant? It's not like all of a sudden I go over here into the Christ-reliant category, and I'm all of a sudden using a completely separate set of gifts, skills, and abilities. I'm using the same gifts, skills, and abilities here in self-reliance. I'm using them over here in Christ-reliance. So in a sense, self-reliance, Christ-reliance, there's a measure of their same. The difference is the numerator. That's the variable because over here when I'm using the gifts, skills, and abilities that God has given me and I'm using them in such a way where I'm trying to wield them, trusting in myself, looking to myself, leaning on myself, trusting in me to use whatever I've been given in order to bring things about in someone's life or in my workplace or whatever, then you're looking at self-reliance. The difference is over here in Christ-reliance, I'm using those exact same sets skills, talents, abilities that God has given to me, but I'm not doing it from the motivation of leaning on self, trusting in self. I'm doing it from the motivation of God. You've given this stuff to me, but I know I don't have what it takes to get this done. I know I don't have what it takes. I am not trusting in me and the greatness of me and the goodness of me and my skill to exercise my skill and my talent to exercise my talent. I'm looking to you. So that's where the difference lies. It comes down to the motivation of the heart. Think of King David. Here's an Old Testament example. King David was a warrior, was he not? Excellent military strategy. Had phenomenal military skill, phenomenal enough to where as a young man he can rush the field using his military skill to take a rock, peg it between the four eyes, the forehead right between the eyes of a giant named Goliath. And that military skill talent and ability, if you go back into your Bible, he's not going out in the power and the might of David. He says, no one's going to trash the name of my God, and I'm going to go out in the power, and I'm going to go out trusting. And he storms the field, runs forward, slings that rock, buries it into the forehead of the giant, and he goes down. That is military skill, not used in self-reliance. That was military skill used in God-reliance. That exact same man sees a woman. And he says, I want to have sex with that woman. I know she's married to someone else, but I want her. And he goes and he sleeps with a woman named Bathsheba. And she gets pregnant. And he says, we need to fix this thing. So he brings Uriah, who's out on the front lines of a military battle, to try to come back and convince him to sleep with his wife so everyone will think the baby that David just planted in the womb of Bathsheba is actually belongs to someone else, but Uriah won't do it. And so what does King David do in that moment? He doesn't go into God-reliance. He goes into self-reliance and turns around and uses that exact same military skill 
to know where the heat of the battle is, where Uriah is fighting and says, Uriah, take this letter to the commander on the front lines because I know that if you go to this particular place in this battle, because after all, I'm a skilled military man, I know that Uriah will go there and will die. Same military skill, talent, gifts, and abilities. One was him in not self-reliance, relying on God for the glory of God, and God gets the glory. One is exercising that exact same skill, talent, and ability in such a way where he leaned on himself, and it leads to one of the biggest moments of sin in the life of David. I can wrestle with the same stuff. There's times where I get up here, and whether I like to admit it or not, I'm hoping and banking on the power of a turn of phrase or a well-articulated point with the hope that it will land on you guys and you'll just walk out and go, man, that's phenomenal and that's great and Pastor John, and way to go. But there's times where that exact same turn of phrase or that exact same point is made and I recognize that the motivation of my heart is God. Like, I, it doesn't matter what a turn of phrase is going to be, God. If you, by the power of your spirit, do not pierce a heart, we're just wasting our time up here. You see, I think all of us know when we are walking in self-reliance and all of us know those moments where we're walking in Christ-reliance. The difference that we learn to distinguish between the two is by coming to a proper despair of self. Do you understand what I mean by that? There's an, imp an improper despair of self. To despair is to be without hope. Paul uses the language in Ephesians 2, to be without hope and without God. There is an improper despair where just you see no hope in the situation. You think God is nowhere near to be found. And what you begin to do is spiral out into depression in some very dark places because despair is the fuel in the engine getting you there. That's improper. But there's a proper despair of self to where we come and we take that exact same language where we're saying, God, I have no hope. I am despairing of hope in self. I'm recognizing that if I'm going to be Christ-reliant in my marriage, it will not be because I'm a phenomenal husband. If I'm going to be Christ-reliant with my children, it's not going to be because I'm a phenomenal dad. If I'm going to be Christ-reliant in my romantic relationships, it's not going to be because I'm trying to run after the things of the world. If I'm going to be Christ-reliant in my communication, if I'm going to be Christ-reliant in my vocation, if I'm going to be Christ-reliant in front of my neighbors, it's not going to come because I'm hoping and trusting and looking and leaning to self. Lord, it's going to be as you humble me to the dust and then I look to you and recognize my hope is in you. And then you go to work. Just like you went to work yesterday. Doing the exact same stuff, but the difference is the attitude of the heart that is distinguishing between self-reliance and Christ-reliance. A proper despair of self that has produced and continues to produce an ever-increasing Christ-reliance in our everyday lives of confessing Jesus. Listen, Jesus is explaining to the twelve the call to live as Christ-reliant disciples, is no call to comfort. That's what he says there in verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And then he says the reality is that opposition to gospel confession will arise. 
It will arise. That's what he says in verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you. Anyone ever been not received because you came confessing the gospel? Yeah? (laughs) Thus, Jesus says, the summons from me to you, the disciples, to go relying upon me. And guess what? That is exactly what they do in verse 6. Look at verse 6. They departed. Jesus sent them. Verse 2. They departed. Verse 6. And what did they do? They went through the villages. They went preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So armed with the purpose of preaching the gospel and equipped with the powerful authority of Jesus himself, guess what? The good news of God's kingdom surges forward as the 12 go, not in self-reliance, but in Christ-reliance. And here's what you and I need to know this morning. You and I have the exact same summons from Jesus as he's giving to the 12 here in Luke 9. We have the exact same summons, but there is one crucial difference between us today and these disciples in Luke chapter 9 in this moment. You see, knowing your Bible, if you go to Matthew 28, Matthew 28, the Great Commission tells us that we have the same purpose as the twelve. Just as they were sent out to preach the gospel, so we have been sent out to preach the gospel. But when you round into the very first chapter of Acts chapter 1, what we see is that we now have a greater power than the 12 had here in Luke chapter 9. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us right now. You see, his power, the Spirit's power, is the power we need, Acts 1.8, to be the witnesses in our homes, to be the witnesses in their neighborhoods, in the city, and beyond. And the reason why I'm saying this is to help us avoid a danger of Luke chapter 9. And the danger is this, where we might be hearing the words coming out of my mouth, landing on our ears, going into our heart, processing it in our mind, where we're saying, well, of course... They went out in Christ-reliance. Jesus just gave them power. Here, you want some power? Here it is. However, Jesus gives power. I don't know. Does he reach into his pocket and pull out, like, power units? I don't know how he does it. Here's some authority. I'm giving it to you. And a lot of us will go, like, well, if I was there, if I was one of the 12, if Jesus would just stroll up in my life before I have to go talk to my boss tomorrow, if Jesus cared, he would give me some of that power, and he would give me some of that that authority. And if he gave me that kind of power and authority, then I would go in the same kind of Christ reliance that they did. And the danger here is this, is that we somehow begin to think they were better off than we are today. But John chapter 16 on the lips of Jesus tells us that it is better for Jesus to go. Why? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, says Jesus to these 12, it is to your advantage that I go away. Advantage. Why, Jesus? For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the spirit of God himself will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so now what we begin to realize is while Jesus gave them power and authority, you and I live in the post-Pentecost blessing of the power of the spirit lives in us. And we are able to go as witnesses, confessing. Because that power is not just a gift given to us, it's the power of God living in us. Saints, this is good news, is it not? Praise God that he supplies everything we need to obey him. Now, if you're reading Luke 9, it would just make a boatload of sense if Luke were to jump straight down to verse 10. Do you see what verse 10 says? 
on their return, the apostles told them, told him all that they had done. So verse 2, he sent them out. Verse 6, they depart and go through the villages. Verse 10, they return, and here's what we did. It'd make a boatload of sense if that's the way Luke wrote it, but notice that's not the way he wrote it. He splits 6 and 10 with verses 7, 8, and 9. And what is going on there? Instead of Luke writing right into verse 10, he interrupts the natural flow of the story, get this, by showing us what happens when Christ-reliant disciples go about confessing Jesus in everyday life. Jesus gives them power and authority. They go out, insert this little three-verse Herod interlude, and what we're going to see is that what happens in the lives of those around us when Christ-reliant disciples go about confessing Jesus in their everyday lives. It causes people, point number two, to wrestle with Christ's identity. They're going to wrestle with Christ's identity. Open up your Bible. Look at verse 7. Luke tells us that Herod the Tetrarch, listen, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. I think happening in the life of Jesus, happening in the life of the disciples who were going out. He's hearing about all this stuff, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, that's a reference to John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. Some in the crowd were saying, well, I think Elijah may have appeared, and others were saying that I think one of the prophets of old had arisen. But Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this? Notice the question on his lips. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. Luke tells us the Christ-empowered authority given to the twelve was stirring up interest in Jesus as they went through the villages. And it was happening not only among Herod, so not only among the rulers who were hearing about all that was happening concerning Jesus, and I would argue the twelve and what was going on there, it lands on him in such a way where it perplexes him. The crowd gets stirred up. They're convinced that either John's been raised from the dead, Elijah's appeared, prophets of old are starting to show up. They recognize something is going on here. But when you stitch it all together, the point to observe is this, that as these Christ-reliant disciples went about preaching the gospel and healing, notice it compelled Herod to wrestle with Christ's identity. People are talking about Jesus, hearing about Jesus, living out Jesus, confessing the kingdom of God, pointing back to Christ, pointing to the good news of God's gospel. People are hearing about it. One particular man hears about it. His name is Herod, and what it does is it forces Herod to wrestle with Christ's identity. It forces him to ponder the question down there in verse 9, who is this? Who is this Jesus guy? I keep hearing about such things. You see, I believe Luke puts this little episode, this little three-verse episode right in the middle of this sending out and returning story of the disciples for a purpose. And that purpose is to show us that when Christ-reliant disciples confess Jesus in everyday life, the folks around them are going to be led to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is when the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, go about confessing the gospel of God. Listen, the watching world will begin to ask questions like Herod. They will. 
The Herods of the world will have no other option but to wrestle with who Christ is because everywhere they go, they hear about all that is happening and they cannot evade Christ. Imagine if the weekly rhythm were the gospel pilgrims of Delta Church flooding into the church, souls weary, needing gospel gasoline poured into their souls. And we do that by the confessing of sin and the remembering of the assurance of salvation we have in Christ and singing songs about Christ and listening to the word of God preached, pointing us to our need for Christ. And that gasoline is poured in, poured in, poured in. And so just as we flood it in, then we turn around and we flood right back out into the streets and the neighbors and the neighborhoods where we've come from. And as we go, we have Christ in our lips and Christ in our actions and Christ in our marriages and Christ in our homes and Christ in our parenting and Christ in our workplace and Christ at the CrossFit and Christ at Aldi and Christ at the coffee shop to the point where people are just going like, I can't go anywhere without hearing about Jesus. I mean, I would love that to be the complaint of the day. My neighbors cannot not hear about Jesus. Because it's just flooding out of me in the way that I ask questions and the way that I shut up and listen and the way that I bring them a meal and the way the Holy Spirit goes, opens that door of opportunity that we just get to walk through and confess Christ in that moment. And the way that I prayed in Jesus' name for that neighbor who got the news that they have cancer. Everywhere they go, they, like Herod, hear about all that is happening and cannot evade Christ. And then by God's grace, in those moments, we'll be able to come alongside them and ask good questions and listen and then lead them to see how it is a tragic mistake to leave the question, who is Jesus, unanswered. If you know your Bibles well enough to know, if you drop over to Luke 23, and maybe you can look that up for your homework this afternoon, is that Herod finally gets the opportunity to see him. Do you see at the end of verse 9, and he sought to see him? He finally gets to see Jesus in Luke 23 when Jesus is about to be crucified, but what does Jesus have for Herod in that moment? Not a word. The moment came and the moment went. And I don't understand all, the, all the, the intricacies of that interaction, but there came a point in time where the answer, who is Jesus, eluded Herod. Which is the why the Bible consistently says today, today is the day of salvation. Wrestle with the question, who is Jesus today? Is he just a good guy? Is he just a, a moral upstanding man? Is he a liar? Did he just go around lying his whole life, saying things that he knew were just blatantly false, trying to trick people? Was he a lunatic? Was he off his nut? Was he just a crazy guy proclaiming to forgive sins like only God can? Or is it just the possibility, as C.S. Lewis said, that he is truly the Lord of all heaven and all earth, cloaked in flesh, born, died, and resurrected to prove that he alone can save sinners from their sin. I think it's C.S. Lewis. I'm sure I'm not nailing it rightly. He's like, let's not just patronize Jesus. Like, it's highly offensive to look at Jesus and say, he's just a good, swell dude who did some moral, moral upstanding things. He's like, don't, don't do that. 
Either, the, either Jesus was a flat-out liar, either Jesus was a straight-up lunatic, or maybe Jesus was telling the truth. And he is the Lord of heaven and earth. As a side note, really quick here, I just want to help build a category for us as it relates to confession. A lot of the times, when you, I, I'm positive that the majority of us are hearing this. When you hear Pastor Jonathan say something like, verse 6, preaching the gospel, verse 2, proclaiming the kingdom of God, verse 11, speaking about the kingdom of God, what you imagine is you having to do what I'm doing to you right now at work. Yeah? Like, I ain't got no time to preach to, preach to my neighbor. They don't want a 30-minute dialogue. Yeah, and that's true. If you try to go home and dialogue for 30 minutes, your neighbor, I need to come and we need to have a stern conversation. That's not how life works, man. I would argue that 90% of your confessing Jesus is asking questions. Ask your neighbor questions and then be quiet and listen. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you like? What do you not like? Do you have a spiritual background? Did your parents go to church? I hear you talk about praying. What does that mean for you? And all of a sudden, you're beginning to learn things. And I'm telling you, as you go about confessing Jesus, that's confessional kind of stuff, the door of opportunity will open for you to be able to say, can I tell you about who Jesus is according to the Bible or whatever it might be? So the question I have for you this morning is this. Have you ever wrestled with this question? There's some of us here this morning where you, if you're honest with yourself, you'll have to say, I don't know how to answer the question, who is Jesus? Like I was sort of putting him into the like, good guy category. I was putting him into the, yeah, he did some swell stuff, and he's really a moral, upright kind of guy, but, like, I've never really wrestled with the Lord, liar, lunatic kind of thing. I've never considered him to be a savior. I don't know that he is the Christ. I don't know that he is the Lord. My encouragement would be find someone who can help you wrestle with that. The other question I have for you is this. Could you answer that question if your neighbor asked you? If you're neighboring your neighbor, and then all of a sudden they're pulling a Herod, out of right field, they just drop a herod on you. Well, who is this about who you keep telling me about? And all of a sudden, you're going, Aah! what do you do in that moment? What do you say? Where do you go? Could you give a short, succinct answer to that question? That's part of what we're trying to build and learn and grow. Because I'm just telling you, saints, the bulk and majority of your making disciple reality will happen in those little seemingly innocuous interactions with your coworker in the passings of the hallways, in the meeting in the backyard, sharing tools, and that kind of stuff. Be ready to answer the question if asked. So as we go in Christ's reliance and people wrestle with Christ's identity, what we will discover is our third and final point, our need to rest in Christ's sufficiency. Our need to rest in Christ's sufficiency. That's what we see there, I would argue, in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Look at how Luke writes, starting in verse 10. The apostles return. So finally, the story continues. The apostles return. What do they do? They tell Jesus all that they had done. And so then Jesus then takes them, and they withdraw apart to a town called Bethsaida, when the crowds learn of it, they follow him, Jesus, and Jesus welcomes them 
And what does Jesus do? He models for the disciples again. This is what we're about, guys. Remember, he speaks to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Listen, Jesus Christ is sufficient. Amen? Anyone here ever found themselves on the receiving end of Christ's sufficiency before? We are like, man, I, I get the whole proper despair of self-reality, right? I found myself at the end of the me rope, and I was like, I mean, I wasn't even clinging on, and I was free-falling. Like, I wasn't holding on. I was entirely insufficient in this situation, and I cried out to my Lord, and he came in with his all-perfect sufficiency, and he arrived, and he showed up proving how sufficient he is, Yeah? Got some folks that have been here in that scenario. That's what you're seeing. That's what we're learning in the feeding of the 5,000. As everyday disciples, you and I are designed. Listen, you and I are designed with God-given limits. We can't do it all, despite what you believe. We have God-given limits. And on their return, says Luke, the apostles quickly rapidly bump into those limits as their insufficiency is properly exposed. First, they needed to learn what we so often forget. We were not designed to be ongoing in our going. Right? Go out, guys. Go on this mission. They go and they come back and Jesus immediately says, okay, now we're going to stop and we need to withdraw. We're going to go and rest. You were not designed to always be going, 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 never resting, going, going, going. No, you weren't designed for that. You have a God-given limit. We were not designed to be forever going in our going. The 12 needed to withdraw. They needed to rest. They needed to learn the insufficiency of their strength to keep going. I think that's what you see in verse 10. Second, though, there's the backside of that truth in verses 12 and 13. When within those God-given limits of their going they must also learn that only Jesus is sufficient to supply and satisfy every need. The two ride and die together. If you recognize that I cannot always be going in my going, I cannot always be going in my... There's times when I just have to stop and I have to rest. The question is, well, is anything going on when I'm resting? Does the surging forward of God's kingdom start and stop and fits only when I'm working and resting? I'm working, working, working. It's going forward. I rest, and then the whole thing shuts down. And then I start working again and going and confessing, and the kingdom of God surges back forward. No, it's not. It's always surging forward because the surging forward of the kingdom doesn't ride or die on our doing. It rides or dies on him who neither sleeps nor slumbers, says the psalmist. He's the one surging us forward, and we just get the privilege of being used as instruments of redemption in his hands. So in those moments when we've been confessing in our homes and confessing in our neighborhoods and confessing in our workplaces and confessing in those places of recreation, and then we just eventually say, I need to rest. I need to withdraw. The backside of that truth is, here is Christ over here saying, yes, do that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep marching this thing forward. Only Jesus is sufficient to supply and satisfy every need. Listen, whether it's trying to feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, whether it's training your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, whether it's fighting to set Christ at the center of your marriage, whether it's honoring Jesus in your work, whether it's confessing Jesus to a neighbor, whether it's walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether it's clearly communicating with a spouse, whether it's putting sin to death or anything else, one truth reigns 
supreme. Jesus is the all-sufficient one, and our insufficiency beckons us to come and rest in him. Notice verse 17. Notice verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied. And friends, I'm telling you, that's what we can experience when we rest in Christ's sufficiency. You see, when the 12, imagine this, when the 12 fed 5,000 men in 100 groups of 50, do you notice here what he says there? He says, guys, I want you to have break down this crowd of about 5,000 men. A lot of commentators say there's probably actually more because there would have been women and children there as well. He says, I want you to break this crowd up into groups about 50. So if you divide 5,000 by 50, you get 100. So there's 100 groups of 50 dotted all around Jesus. Here's Jesus, five loaves of bread and two fish. And so Jesus says, prayer starts breaking the bread and says, start handing it out. They go to the first group of 50 and they hand out the bread. And they're probably thinking, well, that went a little bit further than I would thought. Then they go to the second group of 50, and there it is still going. And they go to that group of 10, and there's still bread. And they go to the group of 20, to the group of 40, to the group of 50, to the group of 60, 70, 80, 90. Here's the 100th group, and they're going, man, this, this bread went way farther than we thought. And what they would have witnessed over and over, a 100 times over, is that they could see Jesus fully supplying, fully sufficient to satisfy the needs of these people. And don't forget what was left over. Twelve baskets of bread pieces broken. And I think what Luke is helping us see is that after the twelve fed the 5,000th person in that 100th group of 50, each disciple grabs a basket and goes, oh snap, he even had enough to supply for us. And there they go, carrying back a basket, each one in their own hands. Each of the disciples walked away with a basket of leftovers, and it was a clear way of Jesus simply saying, listen, I supply for you. You trust me. Trust me. You see, the feeding of the 5,000 forces us to reckon with the question, am I sufficient to satisfy the spiritual hunger of my neighbors? Are you? Are you sufficient in and of yourself to satisfy the spiritual hunger of your neighbors? No, we are not. We are not. The supply to satisfy their spiritual need cannot and does not come from us. The clear answer to these questions is no. Only one person is sufficient to supply for and satisfy the spiritual hunger of our neighbors. And that's Jesus who calls himself what? The bread of life. Jesus alone is the spiritual bread sent from heaven. And all who eat of him by faith will be satisfied and never hunger again. This is why we go in making disciples not in self-sufficiency 
but in our absolute insufficiency. We go motivated by the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, where the sovereign Lord says, Come, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why are you spending your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And then in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up and says, Come to me, all who are thirsty, because I'm going to satisfy for you. And that's why we go to our neighbors. Not in self-sufficiency, but in Christ-sufficiency. Not in self-reliance, but in Christ-reliance. We go saying your soul is dead, spiritually hungry, spiritually thirsty, and you need to eat and drink of him who is the bread and water of life. Can I show him to you? Can I show him to you? Can we talk about him? Can I help you attempt to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Friends, this is the message every disciple needs to hold on to. Confessing the gospel in Christ's reliance so that folks might wrestle with who Jesus is, all while resting in our all-sufficient Savior. And if you're like me, if you're like me right now, I hear this and recognize my absolute need for him, yeah? And I think that is exactly the point. (laughs) I think that's exactly the point. So if you're feeling your insufficiency this morning, anyone feeling their insufficiency this morning, then here's my encouragement. Run, do not walk to Jesus. Run to Jesus. We're wrapping it up, sermon's over. Run to Jesus in prayer. Run to Jesus in song. Run to Jesus in your response. If your prayer of response here in about 10 seconds is, Lord Jesus, I'm insufficient, I need you, I'm telling you, Jesus will hear that, and he will honor that prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, right now, spiritually, would you make us an entire gathering of men and women who are running, not walking to Jesus, dead sprint, full tilt, running to you. Some of us are running to you in order to be saved. We don't know you in a saving way. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, there's a lot of things, but what we are not saying is this, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. We're not saying that. Lord Jesus, would you open their eyes And bring them to run to you so that they might be able to confess you as Lord and Savior. Others of us, we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but because of life in a fallen Genesis 3 world, we just recognize how prone we are to rely on self and our marriages and our dating relationships and our friendships and our work, whatever it might be. And we do not feel keenly enough our insufficiency. And maybe, God, in your goodness and your grace, you're doing that right this second. 
you're exposing how self-sufficient and self-reliant we are. Lord, bless you for that. Now, would you help by the power of your spirit, these brothers and these sisters to run, not walk, to pull a prodigal son, to come back and know and see the running, sprinting father, arms wide open, welcoming, ready, and willing to embrace sons and daughters. Help us to collapse into the all-sufficiency of our Savior so that a watching world, the Herods around us, might see men and women redeemed, changed, truly born again, and ask, who is this Jesus that's always on your lips and in your actions? And that we would then be able to confess. Christ, help us. We know where the power lies. It lies in you. And in that power, we trust and rest. It's in the name of King Jesus I pray these things. Amen.